Coming up on Word Matters, Uncommon Opposites. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. We all know how to find opposites by removing prefixes. Unhappy becomes happy. Disagree becomes agree. Easy peasy. But some words resist prefix removal. Or at least they try. I'll point out a few that don't succeed. Gruntled is a word I grew up with. My dad used to use it, and actually he still uses the word gruntled. To be gruntled is to be happy, to be content. It is emphatically the opposite and noticeably the opposite of disgruntled. Disgruntled, of course, is the far more common word. But gruntled is a word that I grew up knowing. Now, I don't think that my dad probably didn't look it up in the dictionary. He was using gruntled really as a joke because disgruntled was the real word and gruntled is just a contrasting term that should, of course, exist. I think it wasn't until I was working at Merriam-Webster that I looked it up and realized that gruntled is the real word. It's also a defined word. How familiar are you all with the word gruntled? I think I always assumed it was a word, but that was assuming that out of ignorance when I was a child. So it was used in your household too? No, but I just (laughs) presumed that if disgruntled was a word that gruntled must also exist, even if it wasn't used. It is a playful word for sure. We define gruntled. Our current earliest evidence of it in use is from about 1904, and we label it as informal and often humorous, which rings completely true. One of the fascinating things about the word disgruntled and gruntled is that there was an earlier gruntle before the gruntled of my childhood. The word disgruntle dates to the late 1600s, so quite a long time before the word gruntled in its current incarnation was being used. But the dis in that word was an intensifying prefix. It was not the undoing prefix or the negating prefix that we know and love. It was this intensifying prefix. The original meaning of the word gruntle, the old gruntle, the now archaic gruntle, meant to grumble. So to disgruntle was to, I don't know, emphatically grumble. So if you were disgruntled, you were internalized, seething, intensified grumbling, I guess, is what originally you know, the idea of being disgruntled would mean. I always had this vague feeling that grunted was a word, but I'm guessing that the first time I would have come across it in actual edited published prose was probably, as with many people from Woodhouse, he uses it in the Code of the Worcesters. I could see that if not actually disgruntled, he was far from being gruntled. And that's exactly the kind of humorous use that you're talking about. And so I'm sure that Woodhouse probably was not aware of the 16th century sense of gruntle that you're talking about. Probably not. Now, it's interesting that there's also an example much more recent from the show The Office. A character says, it was a crime of passion, Jan, not a disgruntled employee. Everyone here is extremely gruntled. Season three, episode 18, but still very much in keeping with the Woodhouse use. It's strange that English has certain words that only seem to go in one direction, that we want logic to also apply to language. And yet sometimes we have words like disconsolate or unkempt. 
and we really don't have their pairs. We don't have their opposites. Well, uh, we do have Kempt, though. I of mean, course so- we do, but there's a disproportion in the usage and the frequency. Right. Sometimes we impose them, and often it is with yeah. this kind of jokey sense to it. And it shows that you pay attention to language. What's interesting to me is that Kempt is not often used, but we still are aware of it, as is the case with Ruthless. Ruth sure. is mercy. We know of it as a woman's name. And it comes up occasionally in its own right as a word, but you can see that it's starting to fade. And 200 years from now, people will be making similar jokes about he has Ruth. Oh, I think they're making those jokes now. Nobody uses the word Ruth. People who think about language a lot, but it's not a common word. I guess you're right. (laughs) As I was thinking about these kinds of words, I searched Twitter for the word couth because couth is another word that was used jokingly in my household growing up. The more familiar term is uncouth. Don't be so uncouth. Don't demonstrating such terrible manners. But couth is also used as a contrasting term to uncouth, but it also has a newer as in like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, maybe, use as a noun, show some couth, means to show some awareness of propriety. And we define it that way. It's not a use in my everyday language. I was familiar with it as exhibiting a lack of couth, perhaps. Yes. And it is often used in phrases with the negative. That's right. That person completely lacks couth. So this is a word that's sort of rising from the ashes and finding its own way. In other words, kind of a rebirth of an old word that had been largely negative in usage. Maybe. I don't know how long it's been simmering in this use. These pairs, I think, are really interesting. Another one is flappable and unflappable. (laughs) Those are both relatively new. Flappable dates to 1968, but unflappable Mm. is only 1954, according to the current research done so far. So flappable and unflappable are both pretty new, but unflappable is certainly the more commonly used word. That's a funny one, because why unflappable, (laughs) having been flapped? It kind of reminds me of unclubbable, which the OED defines it as not suitable for membership of a club, owing to lack of sociability or desire to conform. I think clubbable just means deserving or worthy of being clubbed. (laughs) They're not actually functioning as antonyms there. I've always liked the word unclubbable. I associate it with Johnson. Didn't he claim to coin that term? He's not the earliest citation that I see. OED has got it from 1764, not from Johnson. I think he accused someone of being unclubbable. A use by him is where I first encountered the word, I think. It's funny. I associate the word with him also. It feels like a Samuel Johnson word. (laughs) There's something about that club being in the club, being part of the club, and also being part of a certain stratum of society, kind of English upper class, that word comes with all of that wrapping. It's just an interesting thing that with these terms, we see very clearly that it's usage and not logic that determines where these words fall. And the usage is so specific in this case. Right. Gentlemen's clubs, these kind of societal clubs don't exist prominently enough. No. Thank God. In our society anymore, the other word unclubbable is not a word that can't really function in our modern society. <laughs> Emily, I was wondering about something. Are there other cases that you can think of where dis, as in disgruntled, is used as an intensifier? Not off the top of my head. I do wonder about its use in the word discombobulate. My understanding is that this intensifying prefix dis is really archaic. Uh There are not many words that it has contributed to in the English language. I'm not entirely sure of that, but that's what I'm remembering. Discombobulate, we say that its etymology is that it's probably from the word discompose. Is that 20th century? Discompose sounds earlier to me. Yeah, discompose is 17th century. Discombobulate is late 19th century. Interesting. 
And now, of course, we have recombobulate that you see in airports because you, have to, because you have to take yourself apart completely to go through security. Your coat is off. Your shoes are off. Your bag has to be repacked in some manner. And so there are completely serious printed signs that say recombobulation area which are usually a few benches or chairs or something, after you go through security. Wait wow. a minute. Recombobulation mm-hmm. signs? Mm-hmm. Done without, as far as I can tell, any sense of jocular usage, although maybe some bureaucrats in airports do have a sense of humor. Airport check-in lines are famous for their jocularity and <laughs> senses of humor. When I see it, it makes me smile. Anyone who likes language would like a word like recombobulate. That's sort of fun. Recombobulate is brand new to me as of this conversation right now, and I am going to embrace it and incorporate it into my family's lexicon. And someday, maybe my children will remark that they learned the word recombobulate from me. I'll credit you, Peter. Peter, you should take a photo of that next time you come across it and put it in the files. I bet there are citations, we'll have to look for this, because it's been around for a few years, because that intense level of security in the last 20 years since 9-11 of going through Metal detectors and having to open your luggage and all the rest of it is something that, especially taking your shoes off, something that travelers are very familiar with now. But I can't believe that they settled on recombobulate. Although what, <laughs> what else are they going to say? Like, put yourself together, man. It shows the sort of disorder that is created. Discombobulate is more than undress or unbutton. It connotes real disorganization, that you really need to get it back together. <laughs> well, and now I'm wondering about the bobulate. If you can recombobulate and you can discombobulate, Uh, Clearly, you can combobulate. Can you also just bobulate? (laughs) And what would that be? I'm actually very disappointed in our dictionary's insight into this. There's hardly anything here about it. It's very unhelpful. Discombobulate? Yeah, just this probably an alteration of discompose. I'm wanting more here. So maybe that's an article I need to research and write. What is going on with discombobulate? It seems like there's a story there. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be right back with more opposites that mostly fly under the radar. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.merriam-webster.com by using the promo code MATTERS at checkout. That's MATTERS, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at shop.merriam-webster.com. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. In case you're still not quite gruntled yet... 
we've got more uncommon opposites. There's a famous listing of these positive uses of typically negative or at least shorter versions of words that we're familiar with as being longer, whether that's a prefix or a suffix, or in some cases, a short idiom that we always use in the negative, for example. And it's amazing the extent to which we don't notice them, that because the way we use them is so fixed. So there was a humorous essay in The New Yorker in 1994 by Jack Winter called How I Met My Wife. And I think it's sort of famous among people who collect these kinds of things. And I'll just read the first couple of sentences. It had been a rough day, so when I walked into the party, I was very chalant, despite my efforts to appear gruntled and consulate. I was furling my wieldy umbrella for the coat check when I saw her standing alone in a corner. She was a descript person, a woman in a state of total array. Her hair was kempt, her clothing sheveled, and she moved in a gainly way. <laughs> That Sounds is like fantastic. Poetry. Someone really had probably collected these. And once you get to a critical mass of 50 or 60 of them, made a beautiful kind of use of them. And if you put it in narrative form, it's one of those joys of language, isn't it, that we laugh for no particular reason. If you were a learner of English, even a pretty good learner of English, a fluent English speaker, a lot of this might seem very strange to you. You might not understand exactly what's so funny about Gainley to describe the way a person moves because it's plausible. And yet, of course, it's very infrequent. The reason that this is funny is because it's unexpected, exactly. not because it's illogical, not because the language can't bear this. It's that these words are not usually found in these forms. Absolutely. In some ways, this is sort of a formal beauty to this version of humor of using words almost just as words. But when we ask them to carry some meaning and we impose that meaning on them, then all of a sudden we realize, oh, I always encounter gainly as ungainly. You know, I always encounter consulate as disconsolate or right. disheveled. Shall I read two more sentences from this? Fortunately, the embarrassment that my maculate appearance might cause was evitable. There were two ways about it, but the chances that someone as flappable as I would be apt enough to become persona grata or a sung hero were slim. I was, after all, something to sneeze at, someone you could easily hold a candle to, someone who usually aroused bridled passion. <laughs> you know, I always thought of humor as being based on laughing at the misfortune of others, but it turns <laughs> out humor can be based on the lexical infrequency expectation. <laughs> Henry Bergson, Henri Bergson, the, the French philosopher, tried to distill what humor was, and I think he finally settled on humor is some combination of the living or moving and the unmoving, something that is kind of immovable and unchangeable that encounters something that is changeable and movable. So in this case, the unchangeable thing would be the idiom that we know. And then if you change it, if you twist it and take the un out of ungainly or the dis out of disheveled, we all laughed. Right. I think that sheveled is another word that was used <laughs> in my household growing up, sheveled. But I had not thought about a person being described as descript as opposed <laughs> to nondescript. I really like that one. Yeah. A descript woman. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing is the extent to which these are hiding in plain sight. And there are so many of them. And it's the kind of thing that I struggle with. Maybe you do, too. You can think, oh, there must be dozens of examples of these. And then you sit and think about it. And it's hard to come up with them. And that's why we have to write them down. You have to take notes about this kind of thing because it's not as obvious. You know, John Cleese said that in Monty Python when they had a bit about nonsense language, and it's a kind of a famous skit because the language that they speak is completely plausible. It sounds like flowing English, 
And he said, we could not come up with that. We literally had to write down lists of words, and we took the beginnings of one word and added them to the end of another word, and then we simply memorized that because our brains are so hardwired by the time we become fluent speakers of a language to follow one sound with another that when you interrupt that, you create automatic humor. You automatically laugh because it's ridiculous, but it requires a lot of attention and study to do it. Speaking of the definition of comedy, Mel Brooks, I think, said, tragedy is when I cut my finger and comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. Um, I always like to try to apply that to language. I like Peter's version better. <laughs> yeah. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey. For Amon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.